Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. I would like to acknowledge that I'm broadcasting today on the lands of the original storytellers of this place, the Wandry people of the Kulin Nation, here where their sovereignty was never ceded. I pay respects to their elders past and present and those of all other First Nations people tuning in today. On today's show, a woman struggles with her new life in small town Tasmania with an absentee partner, house still under construction and her work life narrowing to the domestic sphere. An adoptive mother's death unleashes the buried grief of a young woman's first devastating loss and a couple are torn apart by their child's addictions and an introverted stonemason tries to make a connection. Smokehouse is Melissa Manning's Victorian Premier's award-winning collection of interlinked short stories. It follows a fundamental point of change in each of its characters' lives and builds up a compelling picture of a small-town community. Melissa Manning joins me very soon to talk about her book and the craft behind it. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. As she got up, she considered treading on his hand, if only to make him see this wasn't working. She slipped on her Ugg boots and closed the door behind her, walked over to the slab, tucked her dressing gown tight and yanked her pants down. She sat on the new toilet, elbows resting on knees, and looked out at the navy sky, but it didn't soothe her. It was no longer okay. Tom had promised a house. He promised a view. The caravan was supposed to be fun, and it had been for a time, but they were starting to get on each other's nerves. That's an excerpt from Smokehouse, Melissa Manning's Victorian Premier's award-winning collection of interlinked short stories. It follows a fundamental point of change in each of its characters' lives and builds up a compelling picture of a small-town community. A woman struggles with her new life in small-town Tasmania with an absentee partner, a house still under construction, and her work life narrowing to the domestic sphere. An adoptive mother's death unleashes the buried grief of a young woman's first devastating loss. A couple are torn apart by their child's addictions and an introverted stonemason tries to make a connection. Melissa Manning joins me now to talk about her book and the very finely woven craft behind it. Melissa, welcome to Backstory. Thanks, Mel. It's such a pleasure to be here. Now, I... I have to say we have had uh, short story collections on the show before and we've certainly talked about novels and what I really love about this collection is of course it is in fact sort of structured as short stories but also with the kind of interlinking connections that we more closely associate with novels. Uh, It does allow you kind of some more movement in terms of time, you know, time alone or 
the episodic nature of how things are put together, but I really want to talk about how you came to write this book in the way that you did. Yeah, look, that's a great question, Mel. Um, it wasn't by design. Uh, I didn't set out to, to write this kind of hybrid form, I suppose it is, in a way. Um, I originally intended to write a novel and... Um, Look, it just, I got captured, I found myself captured by the side stories, by the peripheral characters, by the what might be happening in their lives and um, and, and what might be triggering the ways that they respond. And, and I didn't feel that I could do justice to that in a novel form. Yeah, it's a funny thing because I think, you know, a lot of Victorian novels kind of did things like this without any apology. Uh, in fact, I think they were quite sort of experimental novels or, how, you know, we would look at things as quite meta in many ways in how a lot of those sort of period of novels were put together. And, you know, it does in a funny sort of a way give you much more of an insight uh, than sometimes you get to be in a novel we are really wholly in one protagonist's mind. So it does feel very novel-ish, if you like, but it does give you a bit more latitude to really step right off the story without any kind of explanation. So it never quite felt that we'd left the world. And I should say for listeners that the way things are structured is that there are some very hefty stories at the beginning and end, the bookends of the book, if you like, that really do kind of give you that bigger superstructure to the whole book. So can we start by talking a little bit about that sort of the story from which uh, the name Smokehouse takes its, uh, or the the title for the the whole collection comes. Um, Smokehouse is a part of the original, is the title of the original story. Uh, It is a theme in the original story. So can you discuss just that particular storyline, which I definitely used an excerpt from yeah, look, I um, the catalyst for that story was actually a, uh, a piece of flash fiction that uh, won the Overland Story Wine Prize a few years back. And um, it really started with that view of the bay that Nora, the protagonist from the Smokehouse novella, sees um, in the opening. And it's, you know, it's really about um, those kind of evocative, I suppose, Images and memories that stay with you from um, from living in a particular place, and so as I was captured by that, I became more interested in you know, what might else be, what what else might be going on for Nora in her life, and and how might that life be built out, and what are the impacts on us from um, from the the places that we live and the people we interact with, but but really importantly, you know that moving from the suburban environment down to um, down to a much sort of freer and more open landscape where where the characters are much more connected to the natural landscape was something that I really wanted to explore. Yeah, I, I did, you know, when I was looking for excerpts to read out, <laughs> I considered many and obviously one that referenced Smokehouse might have made more sense uh, to, to kick off with. But what I really loved about this uh, particular excerpt was it sort of shows you that domestic disharmony um, and how, you know, part of it is about the sense of place really making you realise the, the, you know, stark realities of your own 
relationship, perhaps things that in another setting you might have overlooked. I felt it quite keenly because I think it's something that a lot of people have experienced recently um, throughout the lockdown, lockdown period where just a change in how you your whole environment works really makes you look at your relationships with others or experience, in, experience them in a completely different way. In this instance, Nora, uh, Nora and Tom are the couple in question. They've moved to small town Tasmania, as we've discussed, and they're building a house while living in a caravan. And half the time, Tom is off working elsewhere interstate, um, leaving Nora with the children and with this suddenly um, disrupted work life. She's now wholly focused on being a parent and trying to, you know, live in this quite uncertain surroundings. Can you talk about that particular setting and how you've designed it? Yeah, look, what I was... So it's set in, in um, Kettering, which is on the, the Don Tricasto Channel, um, just south of Hobart. And what I'm looking to do there is, um, as you've alluded to, Mel, is kind of open up that idea of, of what it's like to live in a more open landscape um, in the context of um, an oppressive... Um, personal circumstance, I suppose, and what that does to open up um, ideas um, in Nora's mind in particular about um, the constraints that have been placed on her life, not just, um, and, and not necessarily by, by Tom, her husband, but by the expectations of society and by um, her own expectations, in fact. And I think there's a, a freeing up that, that is enabled when she's in that very different landscape and experiencing that rural community. Conversely, though, of course, you know, they're living in a caravan, which is you know, a, a pretty tiny and oppressive um, situation to live in. And they're living in a small community, so she has to find her way um, into that community and, and try to forge relationships and, and work out, I suppose, who it is that she wants to be in the context of that. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I want to sort of really talk about how you've how you've kind of focused on that sort of domestic sphere because, the you know, you've kind of really captured a very, you know, nitty-gritty sort of like or a very concrete example of how the relationship is deteriorating. You've given these small details of, you know, of, dis, you know, of discomfort or, or growing disinterest in a couple um, that I think is very well observed. In fact, much of the... Uh, you know, the detail in this book is really what holds it together. And I do want to dive into that a little bit more because that is the art of writing these kind of small, you know, lives or small crises that happen. In some instances, they are very big disruptions and quite dramatic things that are going on. But the thing that really carries the reader through is less the, that major plot point and more this quiet level of detail. Can we talk about that line by line writing that you do, how you've kind of pulled it together to sort of show the reader rather than hit them over the head with what it is that you're trying to say? Yeah, look, I think it's, um, yeah, I think the way that we experience life is is in the small moments and it, it's quite nuanced and, yeah, the, the big cataclysmic events um, for sure stand out in our memory. But the business of life and, and actually living is, you know, is the minutiae. It's the day-to-day um, little niggles, it's the, the day-to-day um, observances of, um, of care and kindness and love that are actually the things that, 
um, pull our life together and, and lead to us, I think, being satisfied or unsatisfied. Um, but what I also wanted to do, I suppose, is to consider that, you know, we spend a lot of time perhaps not thinking about um, the direction that we're heading in or whether, in fact, um, the circumstances that we're in are, are right for us or that we've developed into the person that we wanted to be. And and in the context of that, I'm, I'm particularly interested in what happens to women when they, when they go through the experiences uh, of motherhood and um, the expectations that flow from that and, and the closing down of um, the life outside the, mother, the motherhood sphere um, and, and from that the flow-on effect of loss of identity. And I think that the way that that plays out is, you know, it is the big things like the diminishing access to doing paid work out, you know, outside of the home, but it's also those the minor expectations that, you know, Tom doesn't expect Nora to you know, to, to help make the mud bricks. He expects her to make the sandwiches and the coffees for everyone. It's in that very gendered kind of um, thinking that doesn't come from a place of unkindness from Tom's perspective, but um, can really breed deep dissatisfaction and resentment. Yeah, and I think it's it's that, you know, that you're really sort of seeing the tearing that couple apart. It's this idea of who they both are to each other and how that's shifting in terms of these quite gendered, you know, ideas that, you know, Tom is now expecting, I, I think, or leaning into in that particular setting. It's also a really interesting one because, as you say, these expectations of motherhood and how that then affects a relationship is a theme that is carried over into other stories. I would say in particular there is a story and I'm going to remember, misremember the name, I'm apologising now, um, where, you know, there is a couple whose child has had serious um, issues with addiction and they have really reached that point where things are, you know, where they have no ability to relate to one another anymore there's some great sort of scenes where you show how they struggle with not just their relationship with their child but how it affects their relationship with one another can you talk a little bit about that story yeah chain story is um one of my favorite stories in the collection and and i think chiefly because um you know it sounds a bit strange but i'm very touched by the, the situation that um, that Rob and Lynn find themselves in with their daughter Hannah, and you know, what I really wanted to um, reveal, I suppose, through that story is, you know, a relationship can be healthy, it can be loving, but sometimes um, outside forces or even forces that wind up inside um, the family unit can blow that to pieces. And no matter how much love and care there is, if you can't find that common ground to, to dealing with your responses um, to, you know, the sorts of situations that their daughter Hannah puts them in and, and to um, the grief that comes with the, the loss of expectation of, of the life they thought they were going to lead together, um, that can be incredibly destructive despite the very best of intentions. And... You know, one person's limit is not another person's limit. Um, we all have different ways of responding to these situations and, and different points at which it's no longer tolerable. 
Yeah, there's also themes in there about um, grief and loss and how people process that and, you know, this in some cases preoccupation in others a need to move on and that's really beautifully rendered too. In fact, there is, I think, throughout all of these stories the theme of of grief or loss. Um, Some sudden disruption seems to be, you know, it seems to run throughout and each character has their own uh, unique response to that. How did you spend, I mean, again, it's one of those sleights of hand that a short story writer has or that, in fact, any writer has is to the ability to inhabit a different world, a different human and think about how they might respond to things. How did you sort of settle into that frame to think about things from those perspectives? I think I have a bit of a, well, maybe I think of it as strange. Maybe it's not, maybe it's quite common. Uh, but I don't tend to think of myself as thinking when I write. Um, it's, uh, it's kind of a flow process where once I'm in a story, I just, let it unfold and I'm as surprised as the next person what happens next or what comes out of the reader's mouth. I mean, when you read that excerpt from um, from the Smokehouse novella at the beginning, I almost laughed out loud because I thought, I cannot believe she considered treading on his hand. You know? <laughs> um, and I don't feel like that was an idea that I had. It just feels like it's something that in the moment she, you know, she really felt. So, yeah, I, I think once I'm in a story, I... I just feel like the character is taking me along for the ride, really. I'm kind of um, a privileged passenger in a way. Yeah, I I mean, it's one of those things where you, I guess, uh, perhaps when we speak to authors, particularly those that are quite accomplished or have really produced collections like this that do have that sense of realness that it is hard for people to articulate how they're doing that so I would like to ask you Melissa what is your writing process when you're approaching these I do want to dive more into each of the stories and it is something that I know that is you know it can be quite um, difficult for for writers to talk about but I think that there is such a uh, such a lot going on at the craft level here that I, I do want to find out what it is that you're, you know, how you're approaching each of the stories uh, and whether, you know, you're kind of one thing, you know, as you said, that got you to sort of lean into short stories as opposed to a novel was being captured by the characters. So is that really where you start in most instances? Is it the characters or is it the point of change that you start with in a short story? I think it's um, it's a sense of something, and that might be a character. It might be, like in Smokehouse, uh, the novella, the, the view. Um, it, it might be um, a particular feeling or um, an observation of the natural environment in, in, you know, perhaps out in the country and, you know, the very different experience that you have of looking at the sky at night, for example, it really starts from from that, and I don't think about who the character might be. Um, I don't think too much about what the crisis point might be. Um, I think maybe the exception to that in this collection might be now, um, where I very much knew from the beginning that there was going to be um, the at the centre of it all the tsunami. Um, but I think, generally speaking, no, it, it doesn't. It doesn't come from that. But what I do 
I definitely don't write in a linear fashion and even in short story form I write very piecemeal and you know the beginning's not necessarily the beginning once I get to the final draft and and sometimes um, it is several drafts and sometimes I shift points of view um, rarely temp but yeah it's, it's just a, a matter of for me initially getting it down which is where I find the joy and then and then the editing part which I find to be uh, quite hard work actually Hmm. I found as though it's, there is quite a bit of research in a couple of the stories, especially in Levin, and now I could feel that there was a lot of work that you'd done to try and get a sense of authenticity. Can you talk about that? Particularly, I would like to start with Levin because it is um, it focuses on one of the characters, and as does I have to stress, all of the stories do have a link, however tangential, to the original Smokehouse stories. Um, the characters that you follow are characters that have appeared somehow in those collections, whether in a slight way or a more full way. Um, the story that we follow in Levin is an example of a character that we meet um, in Smokehouse, Ollie, and we get the backstory coming out in Levin. Can you discuss that particular story? It's, yes, Levin was actually not in the original submission um, to, to my publisher, UQP, and um, Aviva Tuffield, my wonderful publisher, pushed me quite hard to write a story from Ollie's perspective, Ollie, Ollie of course, being the protagonist in the Smokehouse novella. And I didn't think it was something I could do um, and, and that story does, I suppose, differ a little bit from, from many of the other stories in that it's um, got a broader scope in terms of time than most of the other stories. And, but what I wanted to do was to showcase how it was that Ollie became the man that he did. Um, and to do that, I needed to show the reader um, his experiences growing up in Germany and, um, and the estrangement and loss of his father and the somewhat um, unusual relationship that he had with his mother. And, and, in, and in doing that, you know, you, um, you mentioned research, but I'm, I'm kind of struggling to think what research I really did for, for Levin. Um, you know, I've, I, I really have feel travelled like... a bit in those parts oh, yes. of the world. And yeah. so, yeah, so, and, and what, you know, and, and what I... What I found when I went back, I went, did go back to Tasmania at, at one point to, to try and verify some of the, the references in some of the stories, and, and particularly actually in Levin when he's down, when Ollie's down at, at Cockle Creek. And what I really found was that um, I didn't feel inclined to um, correct them. I, I felt more that it was perhaps, you know, going for a, the idea of the similitude, which I'm probably pronouncing incorrectly. I have trouble with that word, but... Um, you know, but I like the idea that our memory is unreliable, but we can rely on it to um, to take us to places and to to give us impressions of places and and people. And uh, there's something that I find comforting about that. Yeah, look, I, I mean, it's a, it's a sort of interesting um, thing because you're trying to create a sense of authenticity, and I guess you don't want to be too much relying on the facts when you are in fact writing a piece of fiction. It's an interesting thing though, what can pull a reader out sometimes, isn't it, that that something doesn't quite fit in uh, with the tone of the story or something is sort of maybe not exactly correct. I think, what is that 
that kind of balancing act that you have in fiction? Because after all, these are complete creations of your mind. Yeah, I think it's a fine line. And as you say, you know, no matter what line you decide to take, you can you, you can get something wrong and it can throw a reader out. But I think most readers are, of fiction are prepared to accept your version of it if, you know, if they're invested enough in the story. That, that said, I got to, I think, you know, almost final pages before we were going to proofreading and it occurred to me that there was an error in the story file in that, you know, a major event in that story was happening in a Bunnings car park and there was no Bunnings in Tasmania <laughs> in that period in which it was set. So, you know, that's the, those kind of little things that trip you and you go, oh, God, okay. Yeah. So, you know, but I think I think generally, you know, if the, if the reader's invested enough in the story and the characters, they'll accept most things. Yes, I think I think probably that's the case. I want to talk about more of the stories in the collection and there's quite a few other things I'd like to discuss, including, of course, your relatively recent win uh, of the Victorian Premier's uh, Literary Award for Fiction. Congratulations, by the way, on that. Um, Thank you. So I do want to take a little break now, um, maybe come back uh, fresh and talk about a couple of the other stories in the collection. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. You're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg, and today I'm speaking with author Melissa Manning about her Victorian Premier's award-winning collection of interlinked short stories, Smokehouse. Melissa, uh, before we took that little music break, uh, we were talking about one of or many of the short stories in the collection. I would like to... Uh, while we were off air, I was saying to you that there was uh, the second story that follows the novella, as you're referring to it, Smokehouse Part One, is titled Boy. And I found that that was one of those short stories that I'd wished I'd gotten more from. It was, uh, it, you know, it really piqued my curiosity. I wanted to delve into it more, but all we got was that one snapshot. I feel as though that's an example of a, of a short story working, <laughs> that you feel kind of hungry to know more. But in the context of a book like this, where you are getting a fuller picture, it does have this this odd sort of feeling to it that you're like, maybe it'll be picked up somewhere else, uh, which it kind of is. There there are some more, there's some filling out of the short story, I should say, to be completely fair. But what, you know, that duality, is that something that do you think uh, you'd considered adding to the to the feeling of you know narrative drive in the piece? Yeah, look, I'm I'm, I'm often torn by that. Um, but what I always come back to, I suppose, is my perspective as a reader. And as a reader. Um, what I really enjoy is a story that leaves a lot of space for me, uh, for me to think about how the character might have responded to, you know, the future events that might flow out of it and what they might be and how that might play out in their lives. And so I, I find a lot of satisfaction as a reader in that. And so when I'm writing, um, certainly sometimes it's quite deliberate decision not to do more. 
Yeah, and for listeners as well, we should I should uh, fill them in on some of the detail of that story. It follows one of the fairly liminal characters in the first story, Harry, and uh, his encounter with uh, a woman with whom he uh, may have had a child, and that's kind of explored um, in the in the story. Um, and again, it's it's a sort of interesting thing because before that, I you know obviously you are making us care about these <laughs> these sidebar characters, which we wouldn't have if we didn't have the short story. So it's a very interesting approach uh, to how you've done things. Why? You know, why have you chosen particular? I'm really curious about why particular characters suddenly launched off the page, given you know whether you know their lack of uh, crucial place in the story. I was thinking about you know the though that kind of the Italian sort of uh, images of um, of the you know nativity story where there's someone out the back you know, going to the toilet <laughs> just in the background, that sort of humour. It sort of feels a little bit that way, that there are these characters that, to what you're thinking of as the main story, are very, very marginal, but then have these these backstories. I guess that's life really, isn't it? I think that's right. And, you know, whenever anyone's out of scene, they're not out of scene twiddling their thumbs and doing nothing. Uh, they're out of scene having a very full life that, you know, has has its own backstory and, um, you know, the characters having their own sort of hopes and um, and fears, etc. And so I think you know, this, the format of, of Smokehouse really allowed me to explore that in a way that, um, you know, as I said earlier, I don't, I don't think I could have done through a more traditional or certainly, you know, what meets standard expectations as to a novel these days in the publishing industry. Yeah. Let's touch on now and um, talk a little bit about that story because that is quite a tangential one again in many ways and it's one that really does draw in this idea of a, you know, a big trauma um, really back, piggybacking on another big trauma as well. Yeah, so, I mean, Harry is um, a bit of a, a soft-hearted kind of character living on Bruny Island and... Um, and is, um, you know, spoiler alert, but it's inevitable, um, is, is somewhat surprised to receive a, a letter from a government department um, requesting um, support payments for a child that he didn't know he had. And so then the story flips you back through into his backstory with his um, relationship with, with Annalise um, and you know, the kind of... Um, I suppose insidious ways in which, towards the end of their relationship, she undermined his confidence. And so, what I'm looking to explore there is, uh, you know, how Harry responds to this news, um, and in particular, um, you know, I'm thinking of this sort of opening scene where he's sitting in the car across from the kindergarten, observing a child, and and I think you know a number of people have said to me, oh, I thought it was kind of take a very different tra- trajectory mm. when I first so read that. <laughs> yes, quite. Um, but what I didn't want to do is resolve unequivocally for the reader um, what decision Harry makes about what he'll do about um, the boy. And, um, you know, because he's, you know, he's a four-year-old child and he doesn't know this man at all, so how do you, how do you then forge... Um, a relationship and how do you manage that with um, a very much estranged um, partner, ex-partner. 
So, uh, yeah, I, but I'm, I was interested in how those surprises can come in and really flip us back into the past, into thinking about the ways in which um, previous the previous relationship has, has been so unhealthy. And I think regardless of what Harry decides to do about the boy, um, he learns something about himself mm-hmm. through, um, through this knowledge. And, and I think it gives him a greater strength and, and ability to, to move on from that past, which has caused him damage. Yeah. And now a much deeper version of that, I guess, is the now story, uh, which really is about these multiple traumas that, um, that now the central character has experienced. Uh, can you speak about that one? Because that is, that really does feel a bit more like a, a slight outlier in the, in the collection. It's, it's moving away from the narrative wholly into this very deep one that I felt like could be itself a whole <laughs> exploratory book. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. And look, I did consider whether now belonged in the collection. I mean, it, it, it's got the most tenuous links um, for sure. Um, the only real link is is to um, Graham from Fal, um, and um, now going to the the same school um, that Graham was prin- the principal at. I I just love that story um, because it. Um, it shows the deep care and kindness that relative strangers can show for one another in in light of um, really, you know, ex- extreme circumstances. So, you know, now as, as a young exchange student, having been in Tasmania with his family for, you know, a very short period of time, loses her entire family in Japan and and so... She has to navigate that learning to belong without um, giving away who it is that she was um, and managing the cultural divide um, and managing that sense of loss that envelops her again when um, when her new mother, her adoptive mother, um, dies. But, but, and I think... I think grief does that. I think one grief flips us back into old grief and, and you know, it's kind of that initial shock wave brings on those repeated waves of, of all those old griefs because I, I don't think that grief ever it became, becomes perhaps more tolerable at times, but I don't think it ever goes away and I think it always shapes uh, who we are. Mm-hmm. So I was really, really looking to explore that in now. Yeah, I, I want to. One of the things I'm, I, and I feel like I want to spend more time flicking through the book to to see exactly how you've done this. The use of line by line language in this book is really interesting to me. When I was reading out the excerpt that I read at uh, the start of our interview, uh, I really noticed that you were, you know doing these very long sentences that were broken up with um, commas. Uh, so you get that sense of almost a poetical flow and then short sentences between it. It's one of those those little tricks writers do that give you this rhythm to language. Did you really find that as you were moving into different characters, you changed the actual line-by-line 
approach to writing to give it a slightly different feeling because I do feel like there is that shift in mood um, between Smokehouse, which we as readers have really been lulled into. <laughs> I actually was I was talking to someone about this book and it is one of those books where you're like you're reading you know, as you often do when you're getting into a, a novel, for example, and you read the first three pages and you're acclimatising and then suddenly I felt like I was just sucked into it. And so there is that kind of slightly abrupt um, change that, that pulls you out and it's necessary to take you into another character's head. How did you get that? Because I don't feel like I was wholly pulled out as I was going through the other stories. Was that the way you kept the connection? Was, was it the writing or were you trying to very deliberately give it a different mood? I, I suppose initially I thought of about each story in its own right and and wrote those in a way that um, I, I think was true to the voice of, of the character of that story. And so I suppose that, you know, in doing so, the, the approach has necessarily changed. I, I often get in trouble with my publisher and editor for um, disobeying the rules of grammar <laughs> trying to make up my own way of doing things um, which you know sometimes I let go and sometimes I <laughs> insist on keeping uh, but I think it really comes down to um, what the story demands and then pulling the collection together as a whole um, yeah I mean doing that for one identifies your kind of your writer's ticks the things that you've said before and said before and said before and you need to find either remove or find new ways of of saying them, but I'm really interested in the rhythm um, of the language and of the story on a on a story level, but also across the collection. Um, but I think in in doing that structural editing work, it's important whilst um, keeping an eye on on the cohesion of the story collection as a whole, and not undermining the integrity of the voice in any of the particular stories. I don't know if I've answered your question. No, no, I, I think I think you have. Like you, you have to, to a certain extent, treat them as standalone. So you need that that change in mood, um, and it's a really interesting. I I recommend reading this to anyone because I think until you have, you won't get a sense of how it does so completely hang together, despite the fact that there are stories that stand very much alone. Uh, you know, in fact, all of them could stand alone from the collection, but there is this sense of the whole somehow within it, which I think is the, the hard work done by Smokehouse kind of carries through. I want to touch on that. Um, there are other stories we could definitely talk about, but um, before we finish up, I would like to talk about how you bookended um, the original novella, and that is with Smokehouse 2. And it's a big kind of time gap where we're meeting Nora and Ollie um, at the end. I don't want to give away too much because in a way it is sort of like a novel. Um, but what I do want to say is that there's that there's a real sense of the rise and fall of a relationship but in a way that is like life, that in, even in the best of relationships, um, health and age and deterioration change who we are to one another. I found that utterly heartbreaking, um, the, the final story, because it is such a, a real experience, as, as many of the experiences you've, you've shown, but one that, you know, really um, to sort of see a relationship, a, a strong relationship uh, falter in a way that is just the demise of us all is is incredibly moving. Uh, can you talk about that final section? Yeah, I, I also find that final section pretty heartbreaking. <laughs> and um, I always 
yeah, as it unfurled on the page, a little bit gutted myself. Um, But I think ultimately, you know, it's still reflective of lives well lived and a relationship well lived and rooted in the deep respect and care that, that Nora and Ollie have for one another. And, you know, what's really important to me when I write is to be true to my kind of idea of the way that we live our lives, I suppose, in that I think there's a lot um, a lot to suggest, particularly in Western cultures, that happiness is a destination or an, an, an end point, and once you get there, you're there. But actually that isn't how life works at all. Life is peppered with grief, and losses and joy and sometimes joy in the grief and the loss. Um, It's much more nuanced and it's a much... um, It's not a linear ride and you don't get what you think you're going to get. You get it and you have to to do the best that you can with that. And so along the way, I think, you know, what was really important to me and, and particularly in exploring Nora's character is that she could be um, happy, I suppose, with the autonomy that she'd exerted over her own life and the choices that she'd made for herself and and whether that leads to difficulties and grief along the way or whether it's, you know, more moments of joy or happiness is kind of neither here nor there. It, you know, that's just the road that that life has unfurled for her. It's um, it's really more about making sure that you're not just a passive passenger, I suppose, in your life. And um, and and I think, you know, I could have written something different for for the second part of that novella and something altogether completely different. But to my mind, it wouldn't have reflected the way that life plays out for so many people. No, and I think, again, it, the opportunity of the structure that you've chosen really was was realised, I think, by that, that you could, um, you know, rather than leaving them at a, a point of, you know, happiness, I guess, you're really, you're challenging the reader to go with you to see them as, as real people with a complex life that, you know, that can end in a way that none of us wanted or expected. Um, I, on that note, do you want to sort of finish up by just mentioning uh, your win again of the Victorian Premier's Awards? Uh, I know, obviously, uh, you know, we talk about awards on this show quite a lot. Um, people have mixed uh, feelings about them and, and their place in our um, community, but I do congratulate you on that. And do you feel as though that is going to give you um, the impetus to do more work, um, to do similar kinds of writing projects. I know you've been earned comparisons to Elizabeth Strout with this book, so <laughs> no no pressure. <laughs> it definitely applies some pressure, um, the, the BPLA win. I mean, as wonderful as it is, um, it's always really nice just to have um, that, I suppose, pub- public recognition that some the books resonate, resonated with somebody out there. Um, that's pretty gratifying and Gosh, I don't know. You know, I've been writing um, a novel and um, a couple of drafts in and I'm at that point where I'm not entirely sure whether it is a novel or whether it's, it's something a little bit more experimental. But at least now I feel like if I'm 
want to play with it in a more experimental way, I almost feel like I have permission to do that now. Absolutely. Which is a nice thing. That's lovely. Well, um, Melissa Manning, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about your book, Smokehouse. Thanks so much for having me, Mel. It's been an absolute pleasure. That was uh, Melissa Manning who joined me today to talk about her collection of short stories, interlinked collection. I'm not quite sure what to call it because it is sort of almost novel-like, but let's call it that, uh, Smokehouse. It's out now through UQP and obviously was the winner of the Victorian Premier's Literary Award. Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.